And tonight we're going to look at three different passages that really should give us a reason for giving thanks for, for mothers. Now obviously whenever you have a, uh, a special Sunday, um, it's, uh, there's a temptation to um, just preach something that will, uh, that, will, that will be directed at the special occasion. I, I'll say as, a, as an expositor, it's, 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 it's more difficult uh, because, you know, when you're in consistent exposition, you just know what the next, you know, what the next passage is. And usually, it's a, um, topogetical, as they say. Topical messages are completely uh, and totally appropriate, but they have to remain in context and be uh, exegetically sound. But it's also appropriate to pull principles out of a, out of a narrative, uh, just as long as you don't violate you know, the whole uh, point of the narrative. So this morning, I hope you heard that uh, you know, the, the, the big idea there. Solomon is getting ready to be king, and he asks for wisdom, and this is the way God proves uh, that, that he has granted him this wisdom with this difficult situation. But I think the details about the situation are important, and we can learn some things from... from uh, from motherhood that you you see there, that's instinctually coming out of the uh, of the one that's that, that's good and the one that that's evil. And I was thinking today, Mother's Day is kind of like a a guided Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving you just give thanks, right? You give thanks to God for everything. Well, Mother's Day you give thanks for for mothers. It's it's guided. It's it's specific. And so I just want to uh, show you three passages tonight. Um, that, that should give you reason uh, why uh, to give thanks for uh, for mothers. Um, but first, some some uh, additional statistics that I found interesting that I couldn't work into the into the sermon this morning. Did you know today is one of the busiest phone days of the year? Sixty-eight percent of people plan to call mom on Mother's Day. That's 122.5 million phone calls in the United States went uh, out today. 152 million cards were given. You want to guess how much money was spent on Mother's Day? $20.7 billion was spent on, on Mother's Day. And $1.9 billion of that was spent on flowers. Flowers, that's exactly right. Now, I joked this morning about what not to buy your wife or your, or your mother as a, as a gift. But here are the real statistics. This, this is telling about the heart of a, of a mother. Uh, statistics of what a mother wants to receive on Mother's Day. Right? The number one thing on the list was something homemade from their children. 36% wanted something homemade. Second on the list, 34% wanted dinner. All right? They wanted somebody else to cook dinner for them. You want to know what it was on Father's Day? 26%, number one on the list, 26% on fathers wanted a gift card. I guess it's because they get all the ties and the other things. They want to be able to go buy the stuff themselves. I don't know. Number two on the list was electronics. 
They wanted something electronic. So, guys, if you just look at look at what what mom's saying she wants and what we want, I don't think that that puts us in 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 really good light. Uh, tools were was was on the list. It was a little bit farther down. It uh, it was. Yeah, I think it's 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 probably a no brainer for us as as Christians. I mean, it's Sunday night. It's family time. It's I think it's a no-brainer that, that motherhood is, is important. Um, I also think it's a no-brainer, if you're not, unless you're living under a rock, that motherhood and fatherhood and the family and everything else is under attack and has been under attack for, for, for a long time. And when you think about the passages I'm going to take you to tonight, think why you should give thanks for, for mothers and motherhood and also... See it as a backdrop for why Satan is attacking um, the family and and motherhood. Um, it, it can get really difficult. Um, in the middle of it, it's it's easy to lose track of how important, uh, how eternal a task is that that you're performing because you do it every day, day in and day out. I think that's true for anything that you do. Um, it's an opportunity, though, given given by God. I mean, between the diapers and the trips to travel league, arguments over texting at dinner, you can forget how valuable the valuable the work is. So we're going to three passages, and I would just say three three reasons um, that uh, Satan is attacking the mothers and why you should give thanks for them. And the first one I referenced, I preached this passage before. I'm not going to re-preach it to you. But it's in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Mothers give praiseworthy counsel. Can you think of some counsel that your mother gave you that has been beneficial to you in, uh, in life? Mothers give praiseworthy counsel. Now typically, whenever you hear Proverbs 31, you start with um, verse 10. In my famous uh, line... Uh, who can find a vulturous woman? Her worth is far above rubies. You all remember that. Pastor Tim has yet to let me live that down. It is it it uh, it was taped. It was put on a ringtone. It was played in the office. And you know, of course, Pastor Brody is well known for his malaprops, so he got a big kick out of uh, of that. What was his? The fruit of the loom is his reward, right? That was what Pastor Brody said. Uh, one time, but you typically hear the Proverbs 31 woman. There's books written about it, and 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 here is is clear instruction about a, how to find a virtuous wife. But as I've showed you before, the context starts back in in verse in verse one. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Some praiseworthy counsel from a mother. I know it's a very familiar passage. Um, it's a very significant passage. It's actually a passage where a mother gives her son the gift of godly advice. And Solomon was not the only one that got that godly advice. We get that godly advice. I mean, this is advice given by a mother that was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that made it into the, into the Bible. So verse 1 tells us 
these are the words of the king. And Hebrew tradition tells us that that's Solomon. And they're actually the recorded advice and encouragement given um, by, his, by his mother. Look at verse 2. Solomon begins to record his mother's instruction. And there's three repetitions here indicating the passion with which his mother spoke. What, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows. It's, it's a way, it's, it's similar to the way Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. She's, she's emphasizing the passion or the importance of what she is getting ready to say. What comes next? This praiseworthy advice. And there are four points to this advice. First, she tells him, stay pure. Uh, Avoid immorality. Verse 3, don't give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroy kings. The idea of giving your strength to, to a woman is multiplying foreign wives that would ultimately destroy Solomon's Solomon's influence. This is the idea of going outside of the boundaries. Yes, from a kingship standpoint, going outside of the boundaries of Israel for for a wife. But but I, th- I think by implication, it's 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 immorality as well because it violates God's command of one man for one woman for 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 a lifetime. In verse four, she says, "Avoid drunkenness. It's not for kings." It's not for kings to drink wine or for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart under some type of severe depression that's there. So she, she basically says you're a king. You're going to be in a position of authority. You're going to be making decisions, and those decisions are going to affect other people. Don't drink alcohol or come under the influence of anything, for that matter, that's going to get to the point that it, it uh, skews your judgment. Look at verse 7. Here's the third. Well goes on about the, the drink part. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Look at verse 8. Open your mouth. This is a new topic. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to, uh, to die or, or passing away. In the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Plead the cause of the poor and the needy. The poor and the needy, those who are, are coming under condemnation. The idea is, is protect the weak. Care for those who can't stand up for them, themselves. Uh, give righteous judgments. There are going to be people that you're going to come across in life as a king in the position that you're the only one that stands between them and somebody taking advantage of them or a just judgment or or an untimely death because they're wrongly accused. Protect them. Stand between them and, and give a, uh, open your mouth, she says, she says twice. Don't just let it happen. And then 
the one that we all know is, is choose a, a good wife in verse, verse 10. Immorality, intemperance, standing up for, for the weak, and then find a godly woman. That's pretty good advice. I've joked before, and you read Proverbs 31, I, I could totally see why the Bible is not taught in school any longer. It's so harmful to children. It's such horrible advice, isn't it? And yet that was the advice of a mother to a son. Now, I also think what's interesting is out of the 31 verses dedicated to the chapter, one is the intro, who, who's talking and, and, and what he's going to record. Two of those verses are on immorality. Four of the verses are on drunkenness. Two are on injustice. And 22 are on what a godly woman looks like. 70% of the chapter, 70% of her advice is directed at choosing a good wife. Now, now either Solomon was a dense boy or the woman thought that that was pretty important. And we do know that Solomon was a dense boy and he didn't follow the advice of, of his mother. And he records how he regrets that and what it brought in his life in the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Look at the end of my life. It's vanity and vexation. It's like trying to grab the wind. And then he says, give, so give the conclusion of the whole matter. There's been many times when I've heard the counsel of, of my mother or others, and after I didn't follow it, wish that I would, and penned my own little Ecclesiastes. I think the reason, I think, this is not authoritative, that 70% of it is directed to finding a godly wife is, because that's in the Bible, but I think the majority is directed toward finding a godly wife because Solomon's mother knows the son he picks will likely be a mother one day and influence future generations. Um, the counsel of a lady, the counsel of, of a mother is not forgotten. It doesn't fall on deaf ears. Um, it may seem like it does, even as we were, we were saying this morning. I mean, think of all of the practical sayings that, that are attributed to, to your parents. You remember my dad saying to me all the time, never get behind the eight ball. Once you get behind the eight ball, you can never get out, whether it's your work stacking up or, or whatever else it, it might be. You can think of some general proverbs. Uh, your mama said, if you run with dogs... You'll get fleas. The most memorable line in Forrest Gump. What is it? Mama said, life is like a box of chocolates. It wasn't daddy. It was, it was mama. And it's memorable, I think, because you understand counsel that mothers, that mothers give. And, it, and it's, it, it's valuable. Um. So how do you apply that if you're sitting there as a, as a mother or a mother-to-be or, or a woman? I just think I would ask the question, what advice are you giving to your children? If your child would write a Proverbs 32, and I know they can't, but if they would write something like that and they would, they would crystallize or they would summarize the major teachings that you have given them, that they remember... Now, you've taught them all kinds of things that they forget, both because they're uh, sinful and 
goes in one ear and out the other, and also because you forget things. But the things that you hammer home, the things that they would say, okay, I mean, I can tell you specifically the worldview that my father taught me before I came to Christ. I mean, it's in my testimony. It's this is what you do, and this is where you're going, and this is what it will produce. You go to school, you get a good education, you keep your nose clean, you don't have any bad marks on your record, you graduate from high school, you go to college, somewhere in there you find uh, a wife, you get a good job, you have children, not too many because, you know, then that's going to get expensive, and then you save, and then you retire one day, and and you'll find happiness uh, in, in life. If you lived in a perfect world, a world that wasn't under the fall, maybe some of that would, would come true, but, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't the case. What would, what would your children say, these are the four things, these are the five things that I know my mother, mother uh, taught me? Have you, have you summarized it? Can you summarize it? And maybe you say, well, I don't know. Well, I've taught them all kinds of things. Find some way to, to get it out of them. Um, maybe go back and read some of the cards that, 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 they have, that they've written. Maybe there'll be an opportunity that you could, you could ask them. There's tremendous influence that's, that's there. And think of it from that standpoint. You're going to share more than 31 verses. But if 31 verses is all you had to say then, what would you share? I think it's important to summarize those big rocks, if you will, those boulders, those moorings. Uh, And obviously, as Christians and believers, those would be things that would line up with with the Bible. It's never too late to start. Don't ever believe the lie of the devil that it's too late to start. Yeah, time has passed, and yeah, difficulties will come, and there are consequences and and all of that. But, But the Bible is a book of hope. Jesus is a God of hope. He can restore what the locusts have devoured. I mean, He can take someone that has no life in them and give them spiritual life. It's never too late for God to do something with, with your life. Um, and you can start today. Second, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Mothers have powerful influence. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Mothers have powerful influence. This is tucked away in, in this obscure passage that a lot of people don't pay attention to. They pay attention to the first part of it, but not the second part. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 is where it begins. Um, dealing with women. Women in the church at Ephesus. Verse 8, he starts to deal with men. And then in verse 9, it's, it's how uh, women come to church. They're not to be a distraction to Christ. And then he starts talking about them learning. And he reveals here in this passage the powerful influence that a mother has in God's beautiful design for men and, and women. Look at verse 13. It says, For Adam was 
formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, being the woman, but the woman was deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and and self-control. Now, I want you to pay very close attention because this is important. I want you to see how Paul covers God's design before the fall and then a mother's powerful influence after the fall. Because if, if you haven't been exposed to teaching out there called complementarianism and egalitarianism, meaning that, that God, according to the Bible, complements. Men and women are spiritually equal before God, but they're distinct. They're, they're different. And you say, no, duh, I know that I'm different from my, my wife and, and my husband. Well, egalitarianism teaches that there is no difference. In fact... The distinctions, they teach that the distinctions that are between men and women is a result of the fall. The fact that you men lead by God's command in the home and you ladies voluntarily submit to their leadership, that, that's, that's because of sin. That's a sin pattern. That's a result of the fall. It's very flimsy exegetically. But here is a passage that makes very, very clear about God's design that was good and perfect before the fall, and then what he says to mothers after, uh, after the fall, the powerful influence. Look back up at verse 11, and we'll kind of tra- track it through. He describes the reason he gives these commands that I'm getting ready to read you in, in verse 13 and on. It says, Let a woman learn. That's the command that's there. The rest of it explains how she is to learn. Paul says women are to have equal access to the Word of God in the church. When you gather the church, it's not just for the purpose of teaching men the Word of God. Women are to learn in the church. They're to hear the Word. They're to be under the Word. They're to grow in the Word. And that's the command. And it's a strong command. They're to learn. But they're to do that learning in a way that doesn't violate God's perfect plan in creation whenever they gather in the church. So he goes on. Let the women learn. That's the command. In silence with all subjection. Now what does that mean? Um, A woman is not to be in the primary teaching position in the church. She's not to be a teaching elder because that violates the... God's design. It would make no sense for God to command one thing, uh, root one thing in creation, command one thing in the home, and then violate it in the church. How confusing is that? A woman is not to be in the primary teaching. That's the silent part. And she's not to be in a position of authority over a man. It doesn't mean that she can have no authority. And believe you me, women, as women, meeting the, the specific demands of creation order know how to exercise authority in the home. She's not to be in authority over a man. So he goes on and explains. Verse 12 is simply an explanation of what he's just said. He commands them to learn, and they're, they're, they're to learn in silence and, and this submission thing, and he explains what he means. I do not permit a woman to teach or have an authority over a man, but to be in silence. Being in silence doesn't mean a woman can't speak, she can't sing. It doesn't mean that 
in specific places. She wouldn't even have a teaching position with children or otherwise. But it just means that when you're working those angles in the church, you do it in a way that doesn't violate God's perfect design. You know, think of it this way. There's a distinction even in dress. Uh, and, and some of those things are cultural. Um, I'm dressed like a man tonight, and you recognize that. Some of you don't have a suit on, and you're dressed like a man tonight, but you go to uh, an, another place, and the dress would look very different. In some places, it may even look like a dress. But they know specifically what a man looks like and what a, what a woman looks like. And so here, when you're applying these things in the church, and, I mean, some of them it's abundantly clear. Women aren't to be pastors. They're not to be ruling elders. They're not to be in you know, the heads of elder boards or deacon bodies or those kind of things. But I'm talking about the things where you, you know, you got to use your head a little bit. Um, always ask the question, does this violate the vessel? Is there anything in there that tugs on, on the perfect order that, that is confusing? Um, and even then, it, it, can be, uh, it can be difficult. In silence is not to teach with all subjection is not to have authority. And he now gives the reason. In verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Is that before the fall or after the fall? Well, it's clearly it's before. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he gives the order of creation. This is creation. This is prior for the fall. And this is a for. This is a, a gar, an explanation for the command that he just gave. And the command is explained with the, with the position of, of teaching and the position of, of submission or, or, or proper order with, within the church. It's not a punishment. Frankly, it's a privilege. There's many times I would love to give my responsibilities to somebody else and let them bear the difficulties. God is not cursing you, ladies. He is blessing you. For Adam was first created, then Eve. Paul refers back to creation for the order that God designed. Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? Jesus does the same thing when he's asked, he's questioned by the Sadducees concerning divorce. Jesus believed in the literal Adam and Eve. He really did. Listen to what he says in Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. He answered and said unto them, when they asked the question, Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning. Male, he made them male and female. And for this cause, man shall leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I mean, Jesus appeals back to the beginning to give an answer on a teaching concerning marriage. Jesus affirmed creation, a literal Adam and Eve. He affirmed a global flood, for that matter. Um, he affirmed Jonah. I mean, all of the stories that the intellectuals say, you know, it's just a fairy tale. If it's a fairy tale, then, then Jesus believed in fairy tales. Back to First Timothy, verse 13. Paul establishes the creation order as the basis for life in the church. 
And then he moves from creation to the fall in verse 14. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. There's the creation order. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now he's on the other side of the fall. He's describing the fall. And he's using this as an explanation for why he gave that, that former command. Adam was not deceived, but the woman fell into transgression. Now, that may sound like he's overly emphasizing how bad the woman's sin was, but, but that's not the point. Her sin was bad. All sin is bad, but that's not the point. Paul is not, you know, pulling the baseball bat out and, and beating on Eve here. He's distinguishing her role in the fall from Adam's. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived. He's distinguishing the role in the fall, which is why she should not be in the position of teaching or, or ruling in the church. It's, it's a result of what happens when the order, which is in found in verse 13, for Adam was first formed then Eve, when that order gets out of whack, this is what is the result. This is where it, where it ends up. He's saying what Eve did in the fall and the results of the fall actually substantiates God's perfect design because when she violated it and assumed leadership over her husband, she fell and the whole human race followed. Now, no matter how bad you feel, for Eve, and you want to deflect the blame, you can't get around what, what she did. And it was bad, really bad. But Paul's point is Eve was deceived. And as you well know, Adam was not deceived, which means that he chose willfully and knowingly. Listen to Genesis 3.6. This is what Paul's talking about here in verse 14. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was there. It wasn't like he was over in the next orchard obediently pruning the, you know, whatever trees, and... Then Eve comes along and, and entices him to do the, the wrong thing. Of course, she, she was involved in enticing him. But Adam was with, with Eve. He knew the serpent was there. In some way, he watched. He listened. Watched her being deceived. Take the fruit and eat it. And then he did as well. Implying that he was not. Now, here's the exciting part. Just as God has given men the opportunity after the fall to recover the glory of God's order, He does the same for women, and that is found in this, in this verse, the powerful influence part. Men recover the glory of God in the fall by, by displaying Christ and His church through leading and loving their wives. Um removing the stigma, undoing, if you will. I know you can't ultimately undo the fall, but, but you, you behave like the, the last Adam rather than the first Adam. And you get the privilege of doing that in loving and leading. Women recover it by their chaste virtue and by raising godly seed. Now why? Look at what it says in verse 15. Nevertheless... 
while she was involved in this, she will be saved in childbearing or childrearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. It's a powerful influence mentioned here, accomplished in motherhood. Now notice this is after the fall. It's after the fall. Now watch what Paul does here in this verse. He changes from speaking about Eve to all women. Nevertheless, she, that's Eve, will be saved in, in childbearing, he's been talking about Eve, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. He, he, these are not multiple Eves. He's now talking about all women that follow after Eve. Women after Eve shall be saved through childbearing. Now, it's not talking about getting into heaven by having babies while you ladies may have a few more crowns in heaven for having some of the babies that you've had. The word saved means to be delivered or preserved. He's saying, as Eve bore the stigma of being the one who led the human race into sin through her deception or through her influence, her sisters can reverse that stigma by raising a godly generation of children. You see the connection? Eve was influenced into ungodliness, but now women have the opportunity to influence their children toward godliness. She, was, she fell to the influence of ungodliness, but now the women that come from Eve have the ability to influence their homes, their children, their husbands, and in this case, specifically children, childbearing toward godliness. As the devil deceived her, all women after her can lead others out of deception and in truth. It's a powerful influence. Paul says motherhood is, import, is important. I mean, in some ways, it can reverse the shame of the curse. Um, the powerful influence and also through chaste virtue. Listen how, listen how the rest of the, the verse goes. If... They continue in faith, love, and holiness and with self-control. And this goes right along with you're not just... It doesn't just get recovered by having a baby. It's by the influence that you exert on that child in the child ring, and that influence has to be godly. So he says, if she continues, or if they continue in, in faith, love, holiness, and self-control... God recognizes the power of motherhood, but He says, if you use your ministry of motherhood, you can glorify God after the fall through your influence. And the if is both a promise and a warning. If you continue, you are more likely to raise godly seed. I mean, that's one way you could take it. But if you don't, you'll not fulfill your calling and you'll reverse the stigma. You'll revert to the stigma of the fall. In fact, fruit can be bitterly worse because now you have begotten a heathen, as Martin Luther told his wife, Katie, their first child. Katie, we have begotten ourselves a heathen. That's what he said. And of course, you don't think of that when you see that cute, cuddly little thing, but that's where the heart is. Just give it that first night at home, and, and you'll, it'll go from cute, cuddly to, yes, it is a heathen. I totally agree with Martin Luther, right? Lastly, 
there's a there's a promising witness. Turn over to Second Timothy, chapter two. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I always talk about the God's purpose for marriage. And being a preacher, I always remember it with with five P's, right? Marriage is for partnership. It was not good for Adam to be alone. It's for pleasure. There's a the blessing that comes from intimacy and being able to share a life. There's procreation. God's designed marriage to be the place not only for intimacy but for childbearing. The Lord opens the womb. Ephesians 5 tells us that the ultimate purpose of marriage is to be a portrait, a picture of Christ and the, the church. But the last P is the propagation of the gospel. It used to be a word everybody used. You want to propagate the gospel to the heathen. You read any old books about missions, they'll talk about that. The sending forth of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel. And God has designed marriage, the family, to be point ground zero for, for that to take place. Um, it's not the only place that it, that it happens. Family is is one of many graces that God has given to influence children and families and adults for salvation. But the family is where it begins. How important are moms to the gospel in that process? Well, Second Timothy, Paul intimates how important it was in Timothy's life. Look at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. As without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, that's in Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. At least three generations there. And while counsel for life is important, immorality and temperance and standing up for the weak and finding a godly woman and the counsel that you'll give, However you say it, don't get behind the eight ball. Life is like a box of chocolates, whatever it might be. Nothing matters more than whether your children know the Lord Jesus Christ. They can be abject failures as far as the world is concerned. They can bring home C's, They can take a job that you might not want them to have. They can struggle in poverty their entire life. But if you know that you're going to see them in heaven, that's really what matters the most, isn't it? It doesn't mean that you don't do those other things. It doesn't mean that if they're capable of making A's, you don't say, well, you can make C's, so that's fine. 
you want them to do their best and you teach them to do all things for the glory of God. But, but I'm just emphasizing, what's the most important thing to you as a mother? The most important thing for you as a mother when you, when you think of your, your child is that they be in heaven one day. And you can't make that decision for them, but you have the ability to influence them with the gospel. You can raise wonderful children, but if they perish, you'll grieve. You want them to know Jesus. And a mother has a powerful witness. You can go to countless other moms that are listed in the Bible where those children went on to follow Christ. You can find countless witnesses where those moms were faithful and those children didn't follow Christ. But I can promise you the ones that did all that they knew to do and trusted the Lord with the rest aren't sitting in eternity today thinking, I wish I'd have done more. They know they did what they could do and then the rest is out of their hands. Mothers are mothers, but mothers are, are powerful witnesses. Children see you pray, they pray as well. They imitate your prayers. They see you read God's Word, they read God's Word in, in the same way. They see how important Christ is to you, they'll see how important He can be to them. They follow you in your daily life. The power of influence. That influence can be good and that influence can be bad. Whenever I was a kid, my favorite TV shows growing up was Gunsmoke. I know that's not probably the best, but I was Matt Dillon in my house. Whatever Matt Dillon did, that's what I wanted to do. And in some ways, you know, Matt Dillon's a righteous sheriff and he's taking care of the bad guys, kind of like the, the Lone Ranger. I'm not sure that uh, King the Mule's mother, Bathsheba, would, would approve of Miss Kitty, but, you know, that's probably a whole other issue. But I watched it and I wanted to be like Matt Dillon. Um... If a TV program has that kind of influence, think what the power of your influence and your witness in your children can be day in and, and day out. We're blessed sometimes whenever we see good stuff. And then we cringe whenever we look in the mirror and see ourselves. You know, when it comes out of our mouth, it doesn't sound as bad as when it comes out of their mouth, does it? You're like, how do I sound like that? Um, I probably do. And the point is, you're a witness. And that witness is a powerful privilege. And don't forget that in the midst of all of, of, of life, your labor is, is not in vain. Um, you can give praiseworthy counsel. Your mother will give you praiseworthy counsel if she's a woman that fears the Lord. You have a powerful influence. God has given you a privilege after the fall to, to put forth that influence and in some ways to reverse the curse. And you also possess a promising witness. The seeds that you sow the gospel will take root 
The seed's not the problem. Jesus, in the parable, says the soil is the problem. But moms can do a lot to prepare that, that soil for the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And those seeds that, that land, um, land with force. You ever listen to somebody that you don't know? And there's this question of, really? Is that true? I mean, it, it's, it's not that you're doubting them. It's just you don't know them. And you ever listen to somebody that you do know them and you're going, I know that's not true. You know what I mean? You know, they're, they're giving some outward show of, of, uh, of spirituality or they're talking to somebody else about their Christian life and yet you know their Christian life. I'm not talking about being the nitpicker about, you know, whether they're better than, you know, you're better than them or otherwise. I'm not talking about somebody who's genuinely trying to serve the Lord. I'm talking more, you know, hypocritical um, life. Now, when a child hears the witness of their of their mother, there's a there's a platform in which that they can test it against, and um, and God's placed in you um, ingrained love that that's different from from a stranger or from somebody else. Um, you love them pretty and muddy and mad and sad and glad and sinful and. Um, that's a blessing. God's designed it that way so that the gospel can go forward in many, many generations. Just a few passages to give thanks and to encourage you with tonight. Let's bow our heads together.